Our scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know, that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit 
unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. We take, as I stated, the first five verses for our text this evening. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Peter is writing from Rome, where he spent the last years of his life. The reference later on in chapter 5, verse 13 to Babylon likely is not literal, but rather a figurative reference to the spiritual condition that existed at Rome. Peter's writing to the Christians that are found in the provinces that are laid out here in verse 1. And these provinces are found in the modern-day Turkey. It's within these provinces that most of the churches that we read of in Asia Minor, which the apostles established and to which later epistles were written, were found. There were a lot of troubles that these churches and these Christians faced. They were experiencing intense persecution. Wicked Nero sat on the throne, and the result was hatred and ridicule for the Christians. They were being called evildoers. They were suffering wrongfully at the hand of their enemies. Their possessions were being taken from them. They were being forced to relocate forced to scatter as that persecution intensified in specific areas. The Christians were suffering intently, and that suffering was creating occasion for distress, but also despair. That scattering, we know, began already when the Jews faced captivity. First, Israel under the bondage of Syria, and then Babylon scattering Judah. Already then, the Jews were scattered to a degree. But especially that scattering took place during the early New Testament church at the hands of Saul of Tarshish, who later became the Apostle Paul. And you children remember how the persecution resulted then in the saints scattering, some as far as Damascus and further, so that what was a large church in Jerusalem is now split up. And now there are Christians establishing areas and 
churches that will be established throughout all of the region, extending all the way into Asia. It's during this period of time that the apostle writes. And Peter knew what their suffering involved. He had been there. You'll recall that Peter was thrown into prison multiple times. Why was he in prison? Because he was preaching the truth. And because that which he preached was hated. You'll also recall that Peter got out of prison numerous times. Remember the one time when an angel came into the innermost depths of the prison, caused his bands, his chains to fall off, and Peter was able to be free. But eventually, Peter went to prison and was not released. And he died then the death of crucifixion. Peter was required now to wander, even as the saints were wandering. Now what is it that God is impressing upon us through these words? The people of God do not belong in this world. We don't belong on this earth. Our hope is heavenly And therefore, the chief characteristic of the child of God is that he is a pilgrim. His hope is spiritual. He's one who's a stranger to the stranger scattered. And as he lives in the midst of this world as a stranger, he doesn't live then for the things that are here below. He lives with his eye of faith focused upon heaven. He lives in fellowship with the living God an anticipation of that eternal inheritance that God has given. The book of Peter is important for us in the 21st century as Christians. We're tempted on the one hand to become complacent in this world. We begin to live in such a way that we try to fit in. And the result is that pretty soon we become caught up with the materialism, the greed, the covetousness of this world. The other extreme is we're tempted to despair. We find ourselves in the midst of this world. We experience the reality of sin, the consequences of sin, the hatred, the mockery, the fact that we're rejected, we're despised, that we don't fit in. God presents for us the glorious place of the child of God and also the confident hope that the Christian is able to have in the midst of this world. Peter writes to comfort. He writes to encourage. He writes to assure the saints of God's preserving grace and love. The saints were easily brought to question that. Where is the wisdom of God in all of this that's taking place? Where is God's hand evident? How is God working this together for good? How is God faithful in the midst of all this persecution, all these trials? And Peter assures them, your faithful God has called you. And he's called you to a glorious calling. A calling so glorious and so wondrous that in his faithfulness, he is preserving you, he's keeping you, and he's doing so in such a way that now you have a living hope. We look at that as our theme, begotten again unto a lively hope. First of all, noting the meaning. Secondly, the recipients. And finally, the fruit. Verse 3 gives us that statement, begotten again unto a lively hope. The language of our text implies that new birth is necessary 
for us. The apostle knows the truth concerning man. After the fall, man is dead in sin. He's totally depraved. And the result then is that it's not merely that he is sick. It's not merely that he's dying. It's not merely that he's in a desperate condition from which he needs to be rescued. Fallen man is dead spiritually. He has no life. He can do nothing that's good in God's eyes. He's totally depraved. All the offspring of Adam and Eve, Jesus Christ accepted, fall into that category. Dead in sin and trespasses. Unable to do any good in the eyes of God. Inclined to all evil. Rebirth is their only hope. Rebirth is necessary if there's going to be any hope. If there's going to be any joy. And that's the focus here of the apostle. You have been born again. You have been given new life. He's speaking here of the wonder of regeneration. God in his marvelous mercy has chosen to himself a people in whom he has worked this glorious new life and salvation. Through that wonder... That implanting of new life, the child of God now is holy in principle. The life of Jesus Christ is implanted within him. And though he remains depraved according to his nature, he now has been begotten unto a lively hope. And he's able to do good. He desires to walk and live to the glory of God. That wonder work of God is a work unto obedience, as verse 3 as verse 2 points out. Walking according to all the good works that God has before ordained that we walk in. Now we understand we're totally passive in this process of regeneration. We did nothing to deserve our original conception and birth. We were not at all involved in it. We didn't choose our parents. We had no say with regard to anything. And so also with our spiritual rebirth. We who are dead are not able to make ourselves alive. We can do nothing to reverse our spiritual condition. By virtue of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, that spiritual death results in not being able to do anything good in God's eyes and inclined to all evil. God must work a wonder. And God must give life to those who are dead. That's what regeneration is. God irresistibly and powerfully by the work of his spirit implanting new life within the elect dead sinner. We read of that in Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. God works a wonder of wonders. He takes those who are dead and he gives them life. Now when we talk about regeneration, we do so in the narrower sense and in the broader sense. In the narrowest sense, it's the implanting of that seed, similar to a farmer planting seed within the ground. 
That seed is completely passive. That seed is planted in the ground. In the broader sense, we talk about the reality of that seed sprouting, growing, coming to fruition, and now bringing forth much fruit. But here in the narrowest sense, God is the one that implants that new life within dead, fallen man. And this is a work of God from heaven by which he takes the one who's dead in trespasses and sins and now works within them this life that is from above. The result is that that one is alive now. And that one has a life now that's from above, that's spiritual, that's heavenly. The wonder is that God takes that one who is dead and now separates him from all the rest in the world. That one now becomes a stranger. He doesn't fit in anymore because the life that lives within his heart is the life of Jesus Christ. He's a pilgrim. The result is a living hope, that which is lively according to our text, not a vain, dead hope. And the result is unspeakable joy. The child of God is filled with joy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has worked this wonder. Now we call this initial wonder by which God in the narrowest sense works that new life as immediate regeneration. What that means is that God gives us that new life apart from any means. Immediate means no means. No means are necessary. God, when we are completely unaware of it, completely passive, works a wonder work that is to be ascribed to him alone. There are some that insist that regeneration is mediate. And they would insist that it makes use then of means. In the narrowest sense, they would teach then that, for instance, regeneration is dependent on baptism. So that when a baby is baptized, at that moment when the water hits their head, they now have new life implanted by God in their hearts. They teach then baptismal regeneration. Others connect regeneration with other works of men. The Bible clearly teaches a regeneration that is God's work without any means. God works this wonder, and at times he does it already in the womb, apart from anything of man, begotten again by a wonder of God's grace. Now this rebirth results in a living hope. Hope always involves three things. First of all, hope is future. We don't hope for things that we currently have. We hope for things that are in the future, things that... We don't have. It's always looking ahead. But secondly, hope is always confident. It's certain. Spiritual hope has no doubt. There's no uncertainty whatsoever. The ground and foundation of that hope is God's faithfulness. And God's faithfulness is sure. It's certain. God has faithfully established his work in Jesus Christ. And so we know that God's promises are sure. We know that everlasting glory awaits us. And this hope, then, is a future, certain hope that is a spiritual longing, finally. 
It's a spiritual longing for the realization of those promises that God has made known unto us. We know how we long for a day when it will be 70 degrees and sunny, especially after some time of cold. Even more, how we long for the spiritual blessing of freedom from this body of sin after we've been 30, 40, 70, 80 years in the flesh battling against sin. There's a longing that God works in our hearts. And it's a longing for that day when this battle against sin will be over, when we will be able to enjoy the fullness of the freedom and the joy that is in Jesus Christ without pain, without suffering. It's a longing to be with Christ. That future, certain, spiritual longing comprises hope. Now, in order to distinguish spiritual hope from an earthly hope, the spiritual hope in our text here is identified as living. As living hope, it transcends the things of this earth because this earth is dead. This earth is decaying. The whole of the creation is under the curse, and there's nothing below here that is eternal. There's nothing in which we can put our confident hope. The effect of sin is evident. Death, decay. Rust is corrupting. No matter how hard we work at taking care of our machinery, taking care of our vehicles, rust has an impact. No matter how much we try to take care of our buildings and our property, time and the weather have an impact. There's no hope that's lasting here on earth. Everything is hopeless. And the things that we would cling to are things that ultimately will perish. In God's covenant faithfulness, God takes hold of a people, and God now lifts them out of the earthly and implants within them the life of Jesus Christ, and he works in them a glorious hope, a hope now that looks with certainty to the fullness of perfection in the heavenly kingdom. And he makes us his children so that our identity is now spiritual. It's heavenly. And that which is spiritual and heavenly is that which lives. It's that which cannot perish. It's that which will endure forever. It cannot be destroyed by death. And the wonder is that God will fully realize that joy in the way of death. That spiritual hope is the focus here of the Apostle. And it transcends every earthly expectation we might have. Many hopes we have with regard to things of this life, many expectations here below, this glorious hope rises above them. And it focuses on the heavenly, the spiritual. It's absolutely certain it will never disappoint. It's an intense longing. Now, it's not always as it should be. We know that. But nevertheless, it's a longing to be with God in his tabernacle and to know the fullness of that life that is ours in Christ. And death cannot destroy that glorious hope. Beloved, this the living God has given to you and to me. Now, we don't always feel that life as it ought. We don't always feel that hope like we should. So often we're focused on the troubles, the trials, the struggles here below. 
But God works the grace by which we look beyond the things here below, the things that are earthly, and we focus our renewed hearts and minds on that which is heavenly, that which is spiritual. And what's the fruit of that? It causes us to stand out in the midst of this world. We're strange. We're not living for the things of this earth. We're not living like those who are of this earth. But we're living for the things of God and for the glory and honor of Jehovah God. That's the point here of the apostle. You are strangers. There's a reason why you're in trouble. And there's a reason why you're being scattered. God is the one who's worked a wonder. He's made it so that you don't fit in. We're begotten again by the resurrection of Christ out of the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was God's seal of his divine work with regard to our salvation. By raising Christ from the dead, God testified Christ had accomplished the purpose for which he came. And you remember that purpose that all that the Father hath given me should be saved, not one lost. Jesus had accomplished that now, and the resurrection was God's testimony of that. He was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Romans 4, verse 25. Having been raised from the dead, Christ's righteousness is now applied to our account. We are declared righteous. We are justified through the perfect obedience of our Savior. Christ was delivered out of death so that we, with him, would experience that new life, that heavenly life. And we have that life now. So that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is set forth here as the power which begets us again unto this lively hope. God's power is the only power. His is the power and the glory. And there's no power outside of God. We're surrounded by that power. We see it through the storms, through the snow. We see it through the power to overcome sin, through the wonder that God works to live holy lives. Even the devil, we know, can't stand over against Jehovah God and his power. But more than that, the reference here is to God's resurrection power. And that is that God brings life out of death. God takes those who are dead and he gives to them life. He creates everlasting life out of eternal death. That's the power. That's the glory forever. And so the power of God's grace through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our hope. How is it that I, who am dead, have been given life. It's through the wonder of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He who was dead was raised again, and he's my head. And I'm part of him. I'm not my own. I belong to my faithful Savior. And as the body, I'm raised with the head now to a life that's spiritual and heavenly. Christ satisfied the justice of God. And if Christ be raised from the dead, then also we who are one in him are also raised and delivered from that death. That's the argument that the apostle raises in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 to 18. Our union with Christ as that which gives us to know the victory over 
death. We then, in principle, delivered from this life and raised to a glorious life that's in Jesus Christ. Literally, regenerated through Jesus Christ. And in his resurrection then, we have the power to believe and overcome the things of this life. That's the wonder here of which the apostle is speaking. You have been begotten again by the power of the resurrection unto a living, a lively hope. Now who is it that he's speaking to here? Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit. Verse 2. The grace of God of eternal election is on the foreground here. This is the wonder by which God has separated us and made us strangers and pilgrims in the midst of this world. God wills in his love and realizes in his time the wonder of that sovereign election by giving to every one of his children that spiritual life that is in him. In his love, he predestinated us to be his people, to be his church. Now we know the wonder of this glorious truth, the doctrine of election. What a treasure and what a wonder. And we stand before it with humility. We know that it's gracious, all of God's good pleasure, that it's everlasting. God made this choice before we were even born. It had nothing to do with us. It's entirely unconditional. It's motivated by God's love alone. We know that it's in Christ as God ordains to save us through his son, the mediator. And we know that God has a purpose for that glorious wonder of election. And that purpose is set forth clearly here in the passage. That God would set his love upon me. That he would from all eternity ordain to choose me, dead in sins and trespasses, and that he would take me and deliver me and bring me into the joy and wonder of this salvation. Beloved, humbling. God could have chosen anyone. God didn't need to choose me. He didn't need to choose you. And it would have made no difference for his glory. There's nothing we could have done to object. We could not have complained of injustice. We deserve everlasting condemnation. And yet the everlasting God of heaven and earth set his love upon a people and determined that he would choose them and that he would work new life in their hearts and he would give them that lively hope by which they would now live in fellowship with him and seek spiritual things. A wonder of God's grace. They are chosen by God and separated then from the world. And that's the wonder of election. Election separates. Those who have been born again now are distinguished from the world. And God separates them from the world by working in them that new life and that wonder of spiritual longing and hope. God works daily conversion in their lives as they turn from their sins and as they flee unto Christ to know the forgiveness of their sins. This wonder is accomplished by the Spirit through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience so that these children are obedient children. They love God. They delight in Him. They seek to follow after His will and His way. 
They've been declared righteous, justified, and now they're sanctified, cleansed from defilement by the amazing wonder of God's grace. And that which God begins, he will bring to its conclusion at the final day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns on the clouds of heaven. These chosen strangers are holy, even as God is holy. They pursue holiness, as is set forth here. They are obedient children, verse 14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. They abound in good works, which God has before ordained that they walk in. Beloved, the apostle's point by the inspiration of the Spirit is this. We are strangers and pilgrims here in this world by grace, by a wondrous, marvelous work of God. Grace is what separates us from the world around us. And that grace is what makes a difference. We're still sinners. But the Lord's Day comes around. And by God's grace, working in us, God's children go up to his house in order to worship him and to praise him while the children of the world pursue their own lusts, their own goals, their own desires. Grace transforms our goals and ambitions so that we pursue a different entertainment than the world. We pursue different goals, different ambitions than the world does. Our language is different from that of the world. Though we battle daily against our sinful flesh, we have the stamp and seal of God's family upon us, having been chosen eternally by God, given to Christ, redeemed and delivered by him. We are elect, separated, set apart. And the idea of the antithesis then is on the foreground here. The nature of your and my life in the midst of this world is that we have no abiding city here below. We are to seek one that is to come. Nothing is fixed. Nothing is permanent for us here below. God has chosen his children out of the world to be the recipients of his grace and mercy. And eternally they are distinguished from the children of this life. That spiritual separation is evident in their life and in their walk. Is that evident in your life, in my walk? The apostle gets into that throughout the epistle, demonstrating how it's evident in every area of the child of God's walk. It's evident in their marriage. It's evident in their relation to their employer, how they treat their employees, how they work, how they study. Every aspect of our lives touched by this wonder, elect, begotten again unto a lively hope. Now confessing this truth, beloved, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. And confessing this truth, we are willing to be wronged while in this world. We are willing to give up things, to suffer loss. Such was the reality for these elect strangers. They were forced from their homes, forced from their property, forced from their businesses, forced to give it all up. And we think of Christians in other countries, especially Ukraine, facing that kind of persecution right now, forced to turn their back on all of their possessions and flee them, to have to start a new beginning somewhere else, leaving everything behind. 
At times the loss, the opposition is subtle. At other times it's very blatant. These strangers and pilgrims experiencing in a very real sense the loss of everything earthly. But rather than pursuing our rights, rather than pursuing what we deserve, we're willing to be wrong, willing to suffer. Remember Paul's chastisement to the saints at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6 over this issue. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong, and defraud, and that your brethren. The one who's a spiritual stranger, a pilgrim, knows this isn't my lasting dwelling place. I have a hope that's glorious, a hope that's heavenly. Now God elected on the basis of foreknowledge, according to verse 2. That foreknowledge does not mean that God looked ahead in order to see what we would be like. That's what many churches teach in our day. God looked ahead to see what we would do and what we would be like, and then he chose those who made good decisions and those who were walking in a holy way. That's contrary to the teaching of Scripture, that God's choice of us is unconditional. It's not conditioned upon anything of myself. Ephesians 1 verse 4 makes clear, God did not choose us because we were holy. God chose us so that we would be holy. God's choice of us is that which is the factor that determines our obedience. Think for a moment who's writing this book. This is Peter. Peter knew this truth very well. If God had looked ahead, what would have God have saw about Peter? Peter denying Jesus three times, quickly in succession, with very minimal consequences, denying his Lord. And Peter then, himself, finding his comfort, not in his actions, not in what he had done, but in the wonder of God forgiving him. For knowledge simply means here, God eternally knowing the destiny of all men. And God's knowledge toward his people in election, a knowledge of love by which God works and causes all things to occur. The fullness of God's knowledge of himself and his own glory is presented from the point here of God realizing his purposes throughout time. And that knowledge of God within his own triune being is a knowledge that he makes known to us, his children, giving us to know the wonder of his grace, his mercy, his goodness, giving us to know who we are, to whom we belong, giving us to know that it's through his blood that we've been sprinkled. And this doctrine of the Trinity then, undergirding all of God's knowledge, not an academic knowledge simply, but a knowledge of love by which God takes hold of us and raises us then out of the earthly and gives us to know that we are the objects of his divine love and grace. A love that extends to all God's covenant children whom he calls powerfully by his word and spirit, working in them that sanctification of the spirit unto obedience by the wonder of his love and mercy. God knows who it is that he will shower with grace. God knows who it is that he will lift out of death 
and bring into life. An artist, before he starts painting his easel, has an idea of what that picture is going to look like. And before even taking up the brush, already knows the plan. So God knows the nature of his work prior to it occurring. In no sense then whatsoever do men contribute to God's foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is based on God's sovereign, eternal, gracious decree of election alone. And nothing added. Now these chosen children then are strangers. They're pilgrims in the land. They're spiritually called out because of the wonder of election. They've been given a life that's from above now so that they don't fit in. And having now been chosen and been given a citizenship that is heavenly, not earthly, they now have hope. A hope of heavenly promises and the fulfillment of everlasting life. They're new creatures in Christ. And they have a distinct character and nature. They are the children of God. God's own children living for a time in the midst of this world. Their life is hard. Their life is a life of sojourning in hope. Now we understand the idea of a pilgrim. A pilgrim is one who doesn't have a lasting place. He's merely passing through. We realize the struggles and the difficulties of those who are strangers. We want to fit in. We want others to like us. We want our neighbors to think kindly and highly of us. But as those who seek spiritual things, God calls us to be faithful to him, to show that kindness, to show that love, but to speak the truth with that love. We live a life of longing to be with our Father more completely and fully. Our hope rests on the eternal decree that God will lead us through the troubles and trials of this life to the eternal glory that awaits. It's a life that looks to him as a pilgrim. And as a pilgrim seeks to bring every area of our life into subjection to our Father's will and desires. Again, as obedient children, verse 14, called to be holy, praying for the grace to maintain that holiness, seeking to bring every area of our life into subjection to his will and to his word. It's striking that they're referenced here as scattered. And important for us to note an added significance of that. Not only was the church then under persecution scattered by the devil, but God, in turn, uses that for a purpose. He uses it as a hindrance to the advancement of the anti-Christian kingdom and the work of the devil in that regard. The church in Jerusalem was a, so to speak, easy target. Easily and quickly, the devil could have annihilated that church. But now that church is scattered. Every nation, every tribe found throughout the world. And so no longer is the devil quickly, easily able to separate, identify, and destroy. God, for a time, preserving that church, for the gathering of that church until the end has come. She's found in the world. Now we feel 
in the midst of the world, the struggles of that church. We feel the struggles of sin in our own lives. We see the struggles of that church, the struggles that exist in our own churches, the difficulties that confronted classes. As we're reminded, the devil is at work within the congregations. And the sins and the struggles intensify. Troubles scatter and yet heavenly. And that's the point of the apostle. Don't focus on all the troubles here below. Keep your eye on who you are and the glorious hope that God has given. God has called you unto an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Verse 4. God's free gift is an inheritance. We know that an inheritance is a gift that parents give to their children often, not anything that the children have done to earn or deserve, but freely given. The children of God are the recipients of God's grace and mercy, not only, but also of this inheritance. And the inheritance is the blessed fellowship of God that already now we know, but will be realized in perfection at that day when we die or when Christ returns. And ultimately, at the moment of his return, when he ushers his whole church into the fullness of it. Verse 5 gives us direction in determining the identity of that inheritance. It's salvation. Through faith unto salvation. And what is salvation? It's deliverance from the deepest woe to the highest joy. That salvation is possible only in Christ who is our inheritance. Christ as our inheritance, freely given by God to us, his children. We can't earn Christ. We can't do anything to make ourselves deserving of him. We've done everything to forfeit that wonder. This inheritance, exceeding precious. It's peace with God. It's everlasting life with Jehovah God. It's more precious than anything this life has to offer. Everything in this life is going to perish. We leave it behind when we die. At the end of the world, it will be burned with fire. This inheritance is the only thing that will be preserved. That faith by which we are joined with Christ and by which we are preserved and kept by God. The lusts of this life are not more precious. The materialism, the covetousness, The gold, the pleasure, fails. The hope of the child of God stretches beyond all of the earthly, past all the struggles and all the trials here below, to this glorious inheritance that is not corruptible. Everything else in our lives, including we, are corruptible. Our flesh breaks down. We die not corruptible. That is, nothing from the outside can defile it. But then also, not defiled. That is, nothing from the inside can affect it. Moral, corruption, ethical from the inside is referred to in the defilement. And again, everything about us is corruptible or defiled. Every step we take involves moral defilement. And it's not able to fade. The idea here is imminent death. Everything that we have dies and it's soon forgotten. 
all our possessions, all our pets, flowers. They're beautiful for a time, but then they come under the power of the earthly. They pass away. And even though we try so hard to cling to them, to cling to their remembrance, eventually that also goes away. But this inheritance does not fade. At its center is Christ, who can never be destroyed, and whose life is preserved in all things. God brings us into this living communion with Jesus Christ, to grow with him, to walk with him, to talk with him, and to live by faith. And God gives that gift of faith. Now we know when we talk about that wonder, we talk about the wonder by which we're grafted into Christ. God giving that gift of faith entirely apart from anything of our doing. God graciously taking hold of us who are dead and grafting us into Christ. While we're passive, we have nothing to do with it. But then God causing that faith now to become active so that that faith shows itself in the knowledge that we have now of God, his glory, and the confidence with regard to our salvation. And so by faith we now pursue the things of God and his glory. Verse 5, we're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. That faith that lays hold on the promise, lays hold on God, and lives in the pursuit of the things of heaven, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 5. Two things we have going on here. On the one hand, Jehovah God is reserving our inheritance in heaven for us. This is talking now about the full realization of it, the glorious wonder of perfection with God in glory. That inheritance is guarded. It's safe. It's kept free from all defilement, all pollution. It's not only a reality, it's an absolute certainty. It's not yet revealed in its fullness. It must await the time when Jesus returns in glory. That inheritance is reserved for you. You, dead in trespasses and sins, who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You, who are now begotten, unto this lively hope. For you, this inheritance is preserved and guarded in heaven. In that we find our comfort. Beloved, there's more. The power of God also guards and keeps us now so that we will receive that inheritance. We cannot lose that inheritance, nor can we be lost. Many powers are waging war against us, the devil increasingly will release all of his fury and all of his might. Peter talks about that later in chapter 5. The devil as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Materialism, covetousness, pride, selfishness. All of the powers of sin rise up, seeking to destroy that hope and that joy. Those powers quickly and easily would overwhelm us. They would conquer us if it were not for the power of Jehovah God by which he's keeping us. And the wonder of God's covenant faithfulness is here on the foreground. God is faithful. God who is immovable, who is almighty, who is an unconquerable fortress, who never slumbers or sleeps. He's keeping you. He's watching over you. He's preserving you. He's keeping you from temptation. He's keeping you from the materialism of the world. He's preserving you from the pride of life, 
This is his great power. And this is the power before which the nations tremble. This is the power of God's love toward those who are the objects of his electing grace. We may sink to the depths of despair, the depths of depression at times. Peter did. He had denied his Lord three times. He was ashamed. How could he even think about being a disciple? But then Christ rose from the dead. And what did he say? Go tell my disciples and Peter. The power of God preserved Peter as that power will preserve all God's children. Beloved, whatever your situation, whatever your circumstance, Jehovah God preserving, keeping you by his power, there's no need to despair. The hope of the child of God, very different from the hope of men in this world. The hope of the child of God, certain and sure. And God preserves us by faith, as we noted. That faith by which God binds us to himself and preserves us unto that glorious final end of salvation. The apostle then includes the doxology, which is beautiful. Writing to these scattered saints, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. We read in verse 2. This beautiful benediction needs to be understood for what it is. This isn't a pious wish. It's not something that we merely hope for. This is a declaration in the name of Jehovah God and by the authority of the apostle that is true based on all that has taken place preceding this. As elect strangers scattered, God's grace and God's peace are on you. God speaks to assure us of the glorious truth. My grace is with you. And what is that grace? That grace makes us beautiful. That grace is the power of God unto salvation. The God who loved us from all eternity beholds us as we stand in Jesus Christ. And he shines on us his loving favor. In the Old Testament, the idea of God's face, God's favor, was standing in the enjoyment of the life that is in God. Grace is upon you, and therefore peace. Peace is harmony. It's fellowship with the living God. It's knowing and believing that Jehovah God has embraced me in love, and he assures me of his everlasting care for me. There's no condemnation. He's the one who has given me perfect peace and harmony with him. Now, beloved, as those united to Christ by his spirit, that peace is interrupted. That peace is disrupted at times in our lives. And we expect it will continue to be disrupted as we live in the midst of this world. But we're reminded we are not of this world. We have been begotten again unto a lively hope. And as we walk through those trials and through those struggles, God's word to us is grace and peace be multiplied, that it grow, that it bear fruit in the wonder of our delighting in and living in the joy and hope of his love. What a wonder, beloved. What a glorious life is ours. May we live as pilgrims and strangers. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank and praise thee for the wonder of thy goodness and mercy toward us. In the midst of the struggles and challenges of earthly life, preserve and keep us. 
Grant unto us that lively hope and keep our eye of faith focused on the wonder of that joy that is ours in Jesus Christ. And may we ever live as obedient children seeking after the things of thy kingdom out of thankfulness to thee. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.